God, we thank you for uh, this book. God, we thank you for uh, this genre of scripture, Lord, that has the ability to both convict and encourage us. Lord, thank you for all the things that we've seen uh, in this book about who you are, about your love, and about your holiness. And God, I pray, Lord, as we conclude this book, Lord, that you would show us our deep need for you. God, show us that we are in need of of turning and returning back to you, God, as we stumble into sin. And so, God, I pray that you would use your word to shape us today. God, help us to walk out of this room different. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, over the last uh, six weeks or so, we've been in this book of Hosea studying uh, this minor prophet uh, book. And I don't know about you, but I've personally just been uh, warmed and encouraged and challenged by Hosea. Uh, this is the first minor prophet book that I've actually preached on and, uh, and studied really at length here. And one of the aims of this book was for us not just to see God's grace, but to feel God's grace, to really see the scandal uh, of God's love for his people. And so I know personally, I have felt that in my own heart, and I trust that the Lord has worked in your heart towards that aim as well. And before we conclude this book, we're gonna look at this last chapter, I wanna just remind us of where we've been uh, throughout uh, the first 13 chapters and remind us of even the four reasons why we study this book just to give us some momentum as we reach the finish line here uh, this morning. And so the, the four reasons, if you remember, we talked about this the first couple of weeks, but the first reason is that Hosea helps us to remember the beauty of God's grace by feeling the scandal of it. The way that this book is written, it's filled with just so much poetry and just these vivid images of God and his love for his people. It's aim is not just to speak to our minds, but also to our hearts. Number two, the second reason uh, is just to be frank with you is that many believers are unfamiliar with this section of scripture, the minor prophets. Many believers are even unfamiliar with prophetic literature, which is uh, really most of Hosea. That's the genre that it's really written in. And so I don't, I don't want us to skip over uh, these books as we spend time together, but there are really valuable lessons even within the minor prophets that I wanted us to see and to apply. And then number three, um, and we've seen this almost every week, is that Hosea addresses the painful problem of spiritual adultery. That spiritual adultery wasn't just something that occurred in the Old Testament and it went away, but this is something that we experience and that we struggle with as well. There are many similarities between Israel's culture and what they were going through and even what we go through here uh, today. And so I wanted us to wrestle with that issue deeply. And then the last reason uh, to study this book is that Hosea provides multiple foreshadows to Jesus and the gospel. That I want us to see not just the, the greatness of Hosea and his love for Gomer, but I want us to see that Jesus is the greater Hosea. In fact, he is the, the greater Israel. So I want us to see an Old Testament book through the lens of being a new covenant uh, people. And I, I think that we've seen that as well. If you remember, the big idea of Hosea is that God gives grace to a wayward people because he is God that he extends his grace, he extends his love, not because we're so valuable, not because we have so much to offer, but because this is who God is. It's because he is God. So this book is all about God's scandalous love. 
And so we've seen throughout this book that God chose to deliver this message to a wayward people through this powerful illustration of asking a, a man to marry a woman who would later be unfaithful to him. That God chose the, pro, the prophet Hosea, a godly man, a, a man that was uh, respected in the community. And he asked Hosea to marry a woman named Gomer who would later get into the sex slave industry. And God asked Hosea to go back and to find her, to marry her, to pursue her, to be faithful to her in order to demonstrate God's love for Israel. And this metaphor, this really enacted metaphor, it's powerful because it, it draws us into the narrative. That you can't read the, the first couple chapters of Hosea without finding yourself in the story. And in fact, we've also kind of looked at how we relate to Gomer, that we are the ones who are spiritually uh, adulterers, that we are the ones who have wandered away from the Lord, and yet God has bought us back through the blood of Jesus. We've seen the graphic picture of God's holiness. We've seen God's hatred for sin. We've seen uh, the promise of, of the coming judgment. That's been really helpful for us because I know for me in my own life, like it's helped balance my view of God. That sometimes I lean so much on God's love and his grace and his mercy, and yet we've seen God being a God who is just, God who is a God that is holy, a God who hates sin, and it's helped balance us out. We've also seen that God demonstrates his love uh, through the way that he disciplines his children and, and how that kind of doesn't sit well at first, but once we understand the goal of his discipline, we see that God especially loves us through the way that he disciplines us. And then last week, we saw the power of remembering, the discipline of remembering, of remembering God's faithfulness, his compassion, and his promises, and how that helps bend our hearts away from idolatry and towards the things of God. And then maybe one of the, my favorite aspects of Hosea, we've, we've seen Jesus in here. We've seen how this book points forward to, uh, to the gospel, and we've seen how Jesus is the better and the perfect Israel, that Jesus came to fulfill everything that Israel could not do. So now as we conclude this book, hopefully we can step back and see that one of the main questions that Hosea addresses is how does a holy God who will bring judgment on sin, how, how does that holy God bring back to himself a wayward people? Like how does that actually work out practically, where you've got a people who have been redeemed by God, and yet they've wandered away uh, from him and into sin, how does he bring those people back even though he hates the sin and he's a holy God? That's really the main question that Hosea addresses throughout this book, and he will drive home the answer to that main question here in chapter 14. Now, the time in which this chapter, chapter 14, is written is around the time in which Israel is being carried away into captivity. We don't have a specific date exactly, but most people believe this is around 722 BC. This is following the fall of the northern kingdom as the Assyrian Empire takes over Israel. And so if you imagine them being carried away into exile and they get these words of hope, these words in chapter 14 of, of promise, of being restored, of returning back to the Lord, the people of God would use these words to kind of remind each other of that. Even as they go into exile, they're kind of preaching this to one another. They're telling their children of these words because these people here, they, they would not immediately return back to God. 
See, what God's doing here is he's outlining for his people how to return back to the Lord. And and so the people of God would not actually do this until later on in a future generation. Now, if you notice, chapter 14, it begins with a command, begins with the imperative to return to the Lord. This happens through true repentance. Now, the idea of returning back to God should be familiar for you. We've seen this all throughout this book. We've seen it in chapter two. We've seen it in chapter three, chapter five, chapter seven, chapter 11, and chapter 12. And now we see it four times occurring here in this last chapter. And so chapter 14 is about God outlining for his people how to return back to him, even though they are a wayward people and even though God is a holy God. And so the first three verses, let me just outline it for us, and then we'll, we'll dive in here. The first three verses, uh, God provides a true picture of repentance. We're gonna walk through kind of the ingredients of what a changed life looks like. And then verses four through nine, we see the, the results of repentance. What happens to our relationship with God when we've been wayward and then we come back to God through repentance, what, what does our relationship with the Lord look like? How is it restored? So two main sections this morning. And I'm actually gonna start with the second section first. I'm gonna look at verses four through eight, four through nine here uh, to begin and then close uh, with the first three verses of this chapter and close on how to actually repent and what a changed life looks like. And so these verses four through eight and really four through nine is a promise from God to finally restore the nation of Israel. This is the result of really repenting and coming back to God. Now these verses are just an onslaught of God's blessing, like blessing after blessing of how God is expressing his love to the nation of Israel. This time, not through discipline, but through Israel actually flourishing. Now, in Christianity, I'll just admit this, we, we spend a lot of time talking about how not to sin. We talk about, look, sin is bad, sin is something to avoid and, and to flee from, but I don't know if we talk enough about what to do or what happens when the people of God fall into sin and, and, and they're trying to repent and come back to God. Like, what does that process actually entail? What does that look like to have our relationship with God restored? And so this beautiful chapter outlines that exact issue here. And so the promise of God's restoration are really, there are three aspects here that I wanna point out in verses four through eight of what God does to his people when we repent and come back to him. Okay, so three aspects of God's restoration. That number one, we see in verse 4a, the first part of four, is that there is a promise of healing and not harm healing and not harm. Like God says, I will heal their apostasy. Now, apostasy means being unfaithful to him. And so the healing that God promises is healing because uh, of something that they need because they were unfaithful to God. And if you remember, God punished the nation of Israel. He disciplined them with other nations coming in and kind of taking them captive. And so that kind of uh, destroyed or disrupted Israel. And so God promises here to restore what was lost in the discipline because they were unfaithful to him. And that restoration, that healing is both physical, as we'll see here, but it's also spiritual. 
that there's a, a relational intimacy that, that God is promising to heal that I'll unpack here in a moment. So healing and not harm. Number two, there's a promise of love and not anger. There's a promise of love and not anger. Look at the second half of verse four. He says, I will love them freely for my anger has turned from them. Now, God promises not just healing, but also love. He's not gonna hold a grudge against Israel because of their rebellion. But I wanna emphasize this, that God never stopped loving Israel, even during the discipline, even as he was punishing them. He, he didn't turn off that switch. He, God, I would argue, was especially loving Israel through the discipline. The only difference here is that the way that Israel will experience God's love is, is different. It's more uh, enjoyable to experience God helping you flourish rather than the discipline of the Lord. It's kind of like us for, for parents. Like when you discipline your child, you're, you're still loving them. Like you're not, you're, you're not turning off that switch. You're especially loving them in the discipline. But the way that our children experience our love is different in the discipline rather than handing them a cookie. Right, like when my daughter gets a cookie from me, like she's experiencing an aspect of my love that's different and probably more favorable in her mind than when I discipline, but I'm still loving her. That's what we see God doing here is he's, he's giving Israel cookies here in verses four through eight. He's loving them in a way where they actually enjoy it, where they're actually flourishing. And the third aspect of God restoring Israel here is a promise to help them flourish and not to destroy them flourishing, not destruction. This is the bulk of uh, verses five through eight. You can almost read verses five through eight as a love song, that God is bursting with love. He's bursting with joy for Israel. He says in verse five, I'll be like the dew to Israel. Verse seven, they'll be beneath my shadow, that they'll, they'll flourish like the grain and blossom like the vine. That God wants them to flourish. He wants them to blossom and he will ensure that that will take place. Now, what God is describing here in verses four through eight is that the relational intimacy between God and Israel is now restored. This is, this is something that we need to keep in mind as we think about repentance and I think a proper motivation for repentance like when we come back to the Lord, we not only experience forgiveness and grace, which is unbelievable. Like our sins are washed away when we repent because of God's grace. Like that's amazing in and of itself. But another aspect of, of what happens when we come back to the Lord is our relational intimacy, our closeness with God is also restored. That relational distance that you and I experience because of our sin goes away when we come back to the Lord in repentance. You've probably asked this question when you've been uh, in sin, when you've been wayward. You might ask the question, where did God go? Did, did God leave me? Like, I, I feel like I'm all alone here. And, and what you're feeling and what you're kind of expressing is because you sin, because I sin, you have moved away from the Lord. God doesn't abandon his people. God doesn't leave his people. We're in this relationship with him, but when we choose sin over him, we are the ones that are taking the steps away from him. And so that, that, uh, that, that gap or that relational distance is, is caused by us. And yet we see that beauty of what happens when we come back to the Lord is we experience that closeness yet again. And we see that taking place here in the relationship between God and the nation of Israel. Now, the big question I wanna wrestle with is how does that happen? 
okay? How can we experience being restored to God in relationship with him? What does repentance actually look like? Or to get back to that main question, how does a holy God who will bring judgment on sin bring back his wayward people to himself? Well, several years ago, there, there was a comic strip by Peanuts that uh, came out with uh, Lucy and Charlie Brown. And you, you've probably seen this, where, where Lucy's kind of holding the football, and she's kind of the place kicker. And Charlie Brown would get a running start. He comes sprinting, and, and he tried to kick the ball. And at the last moment, Lucy would, would move the ball at, at the very last moment so that Charlie Brown, he's kind of at that, uh, that, that point of no return. He moves his leg up, and he tries to kick it, but there's no ball. And so he falls right on his back. You've probably seen that before. Well, this comic strip that came out, you have that same scenario. You've got Lucy who's holding the football, and Charlie Brown's saying, look, I'm, I'm not gonna fall for this. Like, I'm not, I'm not gonna run because you're just gonna move the ball like you've done countless times before. And, and they, go, they go back and forth with this. And, and Charlie Brown says, I, I'm, I'm refusing to do this. And then Lucy breaks out into tears and admits and says, Charlie Brown, I, I've been so terrible to you over the years, picking up the football like I have. I've played so many cruel tricks on you, but I've seen the air of my waves. I've seen the hurt look in your eyes when I've deceived you. I've been wrong, so wrong. Won't you give a poor, repentant girl another chance? So Charlie Brown was moved by her display of, of grief and, and remorse and says, okay, of course I'll give you another chance. And so she sets up the football and he gets that running start and he, he tries to kick the ball. And of course she moves the ball yet again and he falls on uh, his back. And then the last words by Lucy she says this, she says, recognizing your faults and actually changing your ways are two different things. And I, I was reading, I was reminded by that of repentance. And I, I thought to myself, man, the, the great theologian Lucy is onto something here. That recognizing your faults and actually changing your ways are two different things. And yet when we talk about biblical repentance, when, when we dive into these first three verses of chapter 14, those two ideas are intimately connected. That admitting your sin, confessing your sin, and actually changing and turning and shifting your behavior are, are, are both are key elements in true biblical repentance. Look, if we were honest this morning, some of us are really good at one or the other, aren't we? Some of us are, are really good at, at confessing sin and yet we don't like to, we don't like to change. We, we like to feel bad about our sin, but to, but to give up the sin, we, we tend to struggle more. Or maybe some of us, we, we like to, to turn and, and to change our sin, but we never like to own our sin and admit it and confess it. And yet one thing that we're gonna learn from this passage is we need both elements as far as what true repentance looks like. And so let's look at these first three verses about God's call for true repentance, how he brings his people back to him. Now, what is repentance? What's a, what's a helpful uh, definition here? Well, J.I. Packer, I think, puts it very well here. He says that repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. Yeah, repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. And as our knowledge grows, he says, at these three points, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. 
Now, the reason why that definition of repentance is so helpful is because repentance is not a one-time deal. Repentance is not what happens when you first come to faith in Jesus. Repentance is an ongoing activity that describes the Christian life. The reason for that is because we continually fall into sin. We have broken desires. And so we constantly need to be exposed and need to be aware of more and more sin that's in our lives. We need to be exposed and aware of of our understanding of God and the gap between us and a holy God, which demands that we need to be repenting each and every day. And so how does that happen? What does repentance actually look like? Well, there are four ingredients to true repentance that I wanna point out here that God outlines for the nation of Israel in these first three verses. So four ingredients to true repentance. They all start with C. Here's number one, calling on God. Calling on God. You see this really throughout these first three verses, but especially in verse 1a and 2a. And this first aspect has everything to do with first realizing that you have a sin problem. It's understanding that the only way that your sin problem can be reconciled is by first going to God and calling upon God. Now this will never happen unless you first understand your need for God. Like this this first element will never take place in your life until you have been convinced deep inside of your soul that you need God that you need to to call upon the Lord in order to reconcile your relationship with him. Like like if you're you're on this side of repentance thinking, yeah, yeah, repentance would be a good idea or, or repentance is something that good Christians do and yet you're not deeply committed to this discipline in the Christian life, you're not convinced in the, the core of your being that repentance is something that you need to do daily, you're never gonna do it. You're never gonna call upon the Lord because you don't understand your need for God. In fact, the next three elements won't even happen in your life. This is incredibly important. And based on what follows in verses two and three, this type of calling upon God and returning to him implies that you will actually receive something from God, that you'll receive forgiveness, that you'll be reconciled in your relationship with him. Now, how does that happen? Like, how, do, how does somebody call upon the Lord? How does Israel reach that point in, uh, in their relationship with them where they need to go back to the Lord? I mean, we've seen this nation who, who has gone after all kinds of sin, all kinds of idols. How do they come to that point? Well, I think it's understanding that even though repentance and, and, and returning from sin is hard, and it's, it's really harder than we actually expect and, and anticipate, there is forgiveness and grace through it. That even though our sin is great, grace is greater. Even though God hates sin, God's arms are open wide for his people to come back to him. I'm reminded of, of Luke 15 and, and the prodigal son. As Jesus was explaining what, what, what his father's love is like, you've got this, this story that Jesus shares of, of these two sons. And the younger son just says, hey, father, give me my inheritance now. I wanna take it, and, and he takes it, basically spits on his father's face and his name and takes that money and just spends it on sinful living. Leaves his father. Well, he spends everything, and he thinks to himself, man, I, I'm gonna starve to death. Like, I, I wanna go back to my father, and I wanna go back to him, not as a son, but as a servant. I wanna 
earn back his love and earn back my status as a son in his family. And so he's got this speech that's ready to, to give to his father, and, and yet he's, he's making his way back to his father. And I love verse 20 of Luke 15. It says, and he, the son, arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. If you know the end of that, of that passage, you know that, that the father throws this huge party because what was lost has been found. And you have this picture of God's love for his people. His arms are open wide. He's a God of grace and mercy and love. And he wants his people to come back. And look, unless we understand God as that, we will never be convinced to call upon the Lord. If we think God is up in heaven with his arms crossed, frowning at us, just deeply disappointed with us, and he's not the God of Luke 15 with his arms open wide, wanting his children to come back to us, we will never call upon the Lord. So the first one is calling upon God because he's a God of grace. Number two is confession of sin. Confession of sin, another, another C for you. Confession of sin occurs really, again, throughout these, fir- these first three verses, but verse 1b, you have uh, this saying of return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. There's ownership of sin. There's a responsibility for what they have done. In fact, uh, verse 2b says, take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity. Do you see the confession of sin there? Now, it's interesting here because God is actually giving his people the right words to say in order to repent and come back to him. Like God's trying to not allow Israel to mess up his, their repentance and actually coming back to him. And so he's laying out what, what to say to him, how to confess their sin to him. And if you remember in chapter six, that this ingredient, confessing and owning sin, was, was one of the missing elements for true repentance to take place. In chapter six, we looked at that, the half-hearted a response of Israel back to the Lord, and, and they were missing this key component. And we looked at chapter five, verse 15, that says, God says, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. And so Israel, they didn't demonstrate this confessing of sin, this acknowledgement of sin until here in chapter 14. And so for true confession to take place, there is absolutely no room for blame shifting. When you think about biblical confession of sin, there's no room for justifying sin. There's no saying to God, I've sinned, but, but you know, it was because I was really tired that day. Or I, I sinned, and I sinned because you know, my, my parents were like this, or I was born this way. There's no kind of caveat or disclaimer of, I sinned, but you know what, I'm, I'm a guy, this is, this is what we do. No, there's, I, I've sinned, period. It says, take away all my iniquity, period. See, God wants Israel and he wants us to acknowledge our sin and to confess our sin. Now, confessing sin means that we are saying the same thing about our sin, the same thing that God says about our sin. And so whatever God says about our sin, that's what we say about our sin as we confess it to him. So confession of sin is, is not this, this flippant attitude of saying, oh, yeah, God, I messed up, and you know, thank you for forgiving me. 
Okay, good talk, you know, go, go enjoy the Trinity. I'm gonna get on with my life. Like there, there's no flippancy with it. There's, there's no just kind of swiping the grace card. But confession of sin is understanding that all sin, even, even the horizontal sin against one another is first and foremost cosmic treason against a holy God. I love, um, I love David's uh, confession of sin, this example of, of what he does with his sin, what he does to God as he confesses it in Psalm 51. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. This is a great example of of what we are to do as we confess sin. Because if you notice, David's confession of sin here was birthed by comparing his sin to a holy God. That's how, that's how confession of sin becomes a, a regular piece of our routine in the Christian life. When we are comparing our sin, not to culture, not, not to other believers, but we compare it to who God is and his character and his holiness. In fact, I would go as far as to say is that without a right understanding of God, without a right understanding of his holiness, you will never understand your need to confess sin on a regular basis. In fact, if, if you claim to, to believe in God and have a, a healthy understand of God's holiness, that will be demonstrated in the frequency of your confession of sin. That confessing sin is, is not something that just bad Christians do. Like confessing sin is what, true Christians do. That if you have a a high view of God's holiness, you have a high view of God, you will have a high view of confessing sin. A low view of God's holiness is a low view of confessing sin. So when you rightly understand who God is, that will bring about this need to confess our sin to him. So this is an important element and ingredient of true repentance. Now number three, the third ingredient True repentance that we see here is contrition of sin. Contrition of sin. In these first three verses here in chapter 14, there, there is something that is being expressed that just cannot be overlooked when you're talking about what biblical repentance looks like. That as God lays out for his people how to return back to him, you can't leave out feeling remorse for your sin. There's this sorrow for sinning against God. And you can even see that in verse two. It says, take away all iniquity, accept what is good. In other words, please receive our heartfelt confession and desire to return to you. In fact, in verse three, they they confess that that Assyria can't save them. In other words, look, we've gone down that road. That, that, That didn't work out for us, and we're ashamed of that. We're confessing that it ruined us, and we hate the sin that led us down that road, betraying our God. Please receive us back. There's contrition of sin written all over these verses. Look, I just wanna stop and ask you the question, do do you feel sorrow for your sin when you're repenting back to the Lord? Like, does does this describe you when you're turning and returning back to him? Is there there contrition of sin? You know, one of the damaging effects of sin is that it, it, it hardens our hearts. 
It produces a, a callousness to our, to our hearts. And so that's a danger when we're trying to repent is that we need to feel that remorse and that grief because of who we are offending. So that's something that, that sin wants to keep us from understanding. That's what, that's what sin does when it hardens us it provides this disconnect between us and the holiness of God, the God that we love. And so reminding ourselves of who we are sinning against can help kind of break away the callousness in our hearts. And in fact, when you look at other passages of scripture that talk about biblical repentance, there's always contrition of sin, always. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter seven. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. See the, the godly grief, the, the godly sorrow. Now, what's the difference between godly sorrow and worldly grief? Like, how do you know the difference when you're feeling something about your sin? You're, you're feeling grief, is it worldly? Is it, how do you know the difference in your own life? Well, I'll give you one one main difference is that you actually change. You actually turn from your sin. That's a great indicator that you're filled with a godly sorrow. In fact, that leads us to our fourth uh, ingredient for repentance is a changed life. This is a huge, this is a huge aspect of what repentance looks like. And we see that in verse three. This captures it really well. It says, Assyria shall not save us, we will not ride on horses and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. <clears throat> now, this is a description of a people who, who are making a 180. They're confessing the fact that Assyria and these other nations, they cannot save them. They did not come through for them. And, and now they're coming back to God. They admit to idolatry. They're, they're saying, look, our, our God is not in what our hands produce. We're, we're not turning to that anymore. We're turning away from that. This is a people now who are committed to leaving their old ways behind as, as repentance involves a shift in behavior. Now notice, furthermore, that, that this doesn't end with just verse 2. As, as they're, they're making sacrifices with bulls. It doesn't just end there, but it involves verse three of having obedience and a changed life that follows that. Look, God has been asking that from his people all throughout this book. Chapter four, verse eight. Chapter five, verse six. Chapter six, verse six. Chapter eight, verse 13. Over and over and over again, God is saying, look, don't give me empty praise. Don't give me these empty sacrifices, these empty commitments. You need to back it up with actually changing and leaving the sin that you are so committed to. That's what God wants. God wants your heart. He doesn't just want the right words to say or, or the right formula. He wants a heart that is broken, that wants to be restored to the God who loves us. This is really, really important. Look, God wants us to be a people who not just call upon him, who not just feel sorrow for our sin, who not just confess our sin. God wants a people who turn away from our sin. And again, some of us are really, really good at those first three, but it's that last aspect. It's this changing your life that is so fundamentally important. Like, did you know that our enemy, Satan, doesn't care if you confess your sin? He's okay with that. 
He's okay with you calling upon the Lord. He's okay with you feeling guilty about your sin, feeling something. But the thing that Satan is terrified of is when you actually leave your sin and you shift your behavior. He's terrified of that. And so something that happens a lot at church is that, man, I just wanna come to church and I know I've been wrestling with sin. I just wanna feel something about my sin. I wanna feel the guilt. I wanna feel the heaviness And if I can walk out of here feeling something, then I'm good. That's the destination. And yet that's not the destination. That's only the beginning. And so changing our life is a huge element in actually repenting. Now, before we close today, whenever you preach a sermon on repentance, you usually come to this moment where, you know, you you start to hammer home this point of, hey, if you're in sin, you need to repent, Hey, if you, if you haven't repented, you need to start doing that and, and leaving the sin. And, and that's important, okay? I want, I want that to take place for sure. But I wanna close in a different way today. And I want to close in encouraging us today. I wanna to encourage those of us who in your own life, you're, you're trying to do this. Like you're, you're waging war against sin. Like, like you're trying to implement these four ingredients in your life. And yet, honestly, you're, you're probably losing more battles than you're winning. And I just wanna spend the rest of our time just, just encouraging you with, with this idea of, of repentance just for a moment, okay? So I want you to think about repentance in this way. I'm gonna use an illustration to, to try to help encourage us here. Imagine repentance as a man who is walking in a specific direction. Okay, a man is walking in a direction and he realizes that he's walking in the wrong direction. Okay, so what does he do? He's walking, he realizes, so he stops, he realizes he's walking in the wrong direction, he turns and he walks in the correct direction. Okay, it's pretty simple, pretty quick uh, process there. Realizes, stops, turns, and walks in the new direction. Now imagine for a moment a man who is riding a bicycle. Okay, he's riding a bicycle, realizes that he's uh, biking in the wrong direction, okay? So he's gotta realize that, and then to, to stop a bicycle, you can't just stop on a dime unless you're a teenager, but you're, you're riding that bicycle, and it's gonna take you some time to come to a stop, okay? So you stop, and you kinda you know, move your bike around in the right direction, and then you start pedaling. It's gonna take you some time to, to gain speed and pedal in the right direction, okay? It takes a little bit more time Okay, a little bit more focus, but you eventually get to the right direction. Now, I want you to imagine a person who's driving a car. Okay, driving a car in a certain direction, they realize that they're headed in the wrong direction. So what does he do? Well, usually when you're trying to turn and go to a new direction, it's going to take you some time out of your way in order to head in the right direction. Okay, so again, it's gonna take longer than changing directions on a bike, longer than, than a person who's walking in the wrong direction. Now, imagine if you are driving or piloting, whatever the right word is, of, of a large ship. Okay, you got this massive ship, okay? And you realize that you're, you're going in the wrong direction. And so changing the direction of a large ship might actually take miles for you to actually come to a slower speed until you start to turn. And that turn is massive. That's gonna take you a lot of time in order to turn and head in the right direction. It's gonna take more time in order to gain uh, more speed. Okay, now think about those four images for a moment as it relates to repentance. And I wanna make a couple observations about repentance. 
Some sins are easy. Some sins are, are, are small. They're not ingrained in our nature. And just like the man who's walking in the wrong direction, we can realize it through the grace of God. We can stop, we can turn and start walking in the right direction, right? Now there's a process there that God works in our lives of helping us realize, helping us come to a stop and turning and then walking in the new direction, okay? Now, other sins are bigger. Other sins are, are enormous. In fact, if we were frank today, there are some sins in our lives that we don't even consider that them to be sins. There are some sins that are so ingrained in the way that we live our lives, in, in, in our hearts and in our nature, that it's hard for us even to recognize that they're even sin. And yet what God does is that he patiently works with us. He patiently causes us to slow down carefully, like, like the captain of that ship, so that he can bring us through the turn and in a new direction where he can allow us to to go back up to speed in faithfulness to him. That's a lot of repentance is in our lives. It's, it's one of those four images. Look, there's two things that, that I find helpful in my own life when I think about those images. Number one, oftentimes when we talk about repentance and God is trying to work repentance in our lives, oftentimes it is not instantaneous. Oftentimes, it is not just a quick fix where we immediately turn in our lives. Most of the time, it's gradual. Most of the time, it, it is over time that God brings us to a stop and turns us and brings us up to speed. The second thing that I wanna point out here is the fact uh, of the turn, of how God actually turns his people. It's, it's like that large ship that's turning that for a, a long time, that ship is neither headed in the wrong direction or the, the right direction that they're trying to turn. And what they call that is you're kind of dead in the water, if you will. And, and that is, honest, that's so much of the Christian life. Like so much of the Christian life is, is trying to turn and you're not in the right direction, you're not in the, in the wrong direction. You've confessed sin, you've, you've called upon the Lord, you've felt sorrow for your sin, and yet there's little progress going on in your life. And at that point, you are in the turn. And I just wanna encourage you this morning, I wanna encourage you to, to keep the large view in mind that speed will pick up, that godliness will grow in your heart, that God may do it slowly, God may be patiently working in your life, but he promises to complete that which he starts. Look, some of you have confessed sin, some of you are, are waging war against sin, and you haven't experienced that instantaneous change in your life. Look, keep praying, keep repenting, keep pursuing Jesus in godliness. And, and look, in the end, God is conforming you to the image of Jesus in this long process of turning you. Look, you don't want a quick fix. You, you don't want something that, that can just go away immediately because what God does in the long term is he's shaping us into the image of Jesus. He is growing our realization of our dependency upon the Lord. And it is in his beautiful, mysterious grace and wisdom that he eventually turns us away from sin. Like there was no quick fix with the nation of Israel. It wasn't something that we saw here that was just immediate, but over time, 
He quickly turns this nation back to himself, and oftentimes he does the same in our lives. And so this morning as we close, I just want to ask you the question, do you, do, do you know Jesus today? Do you know Jesus? Because when we talk about repentance and we talk about running away from sin and running to Jesus, like you've got to know Jesus. You've got to know that, that the only way to say no to sin and yes to Jesus is seeing his beauty and his greatness. Because as sin comes to us and it lures us away with these false promises, we need something bigger and stronger and more powerful than our sin to convince us to turn. So look, do you know him today? Are you filled with the beauty of Jesus and, and what he's done for you on the cross? That he's taken your place and he's disarmed the powers and, and those chains that we are enslaved to. That Jesus has made that possible for us, for us to actually live out chapter 14 and return back to the Lord. So we talk about returning. Don't forget about Jesus. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for uh, the beauty of, of your grace and your mercy in our lives. God, we thank you that, Lord, you, you have a plan. God, that you are, are constantly working. God, as John Piper would say, Lord, you are doing hundreds and thousands of things in our lives, and we might, we might be aware of three of them. So God, I pray that you would help us to, to trust you Help us to lean into your promises. Help us to continue to get up and to keep fighting sin, to keep repenting. So God, I pray that you would, you would work patience in our lives as we turn to you. God, we thank you for Jesus who makes this all possible. In his name, I pray, amen.